Welcome to POP. My name is Pastor Tony Katko, and this is a shortened version of our sermon from December 18th. I was reflecting on Matthew's version of the Christmas story this week, and we all know how it goes. Joseph finds out that Mary was pregnant, and it's not his because they're not living together yet, and so he plans to divorce her, but this angel comes in a dream and tells Joseph that the child is conceived by the Holy Spirit. You are to name him Jesus because he will save your people. As we hear this story today, we might think, oh, a miraculous pregnancy, what a blessing. But the reality for this couple is that they were then left with a mess to deal with. Even though Joseph and Mary were convinced by this miracle, they know that other people wouldn't believe it. They know that for the rest of their lives, they're gonna have to deal with rumors and people murmuring and looking at them, judging them. According to the gospels, Jesus was born into a scandal. And it's not just a scandal. Actually, if you keep reading in Matthew, it gets worse. King Herod comes after this prophesied child to try and kill him. And so this couple with their young child have to live as refugees for a while, running away to Egypt until it's safe to go back home. So there's a scandal and there's danger. And then if you read Luke's version, this baby Messiah didn't even have the decency to be born at home. You have this image of full-term Mary riding on a donkey looking for a place to give birth. None of that sounds easy. None of it sounds peaceful. It sounds like a mess. It makes me think actually of some of our holiday traditions. One of our family's favorite traditions is Advent dinners. Caitlin and I have done this since we were married. It started just the two of us, and for each of those four weeks before Christmas, we pick one night to have a candlelit dinner with our Advent wreath, and each week we light another candle and we do a little devotion, and then I get out my guitar and sing some Christmas songs, and while we eat, we talk about the devotion. It's just a lovely way to spend some evenings leading up until Christmas. And our oldest son is four years old, which means that he's finally at this age where he'll be able to remember what we do in these traditions. So it's exciting. We were getting excited, getting ready for this first Advent dinner this year. And we got the dinner ready, which was cooked, not just reheated. We had the candles up, we had my guitar out, we had our devotional book, everything was good to go. And it was all looking good for about 30 seconds. And then the screaming starts. Eloise, who is 18 months old, was not even unhappy. She had everything she wants. She was just screaming because she felt like it. And then the food starts flying and the dog decides that she's the cleanup crew, but she decides this pile of food on the floor isn't enough. And so she jumps up on the table and there's more screaming about that. And then we have this moment where things are finally quiet enough to read this little devotional, just one short paragraph. And our four-year-old, Oliver, won't stop talking. And it's not about anything to do with Christmas or the reading. It's just whatever was on his mind. And so I am talking over our son, finally finishing reading this little paragraph. And Oliver, who has eaten like two bites at this point of his dinner, says, I'm all done, and gets up from the table. So Caitlin and I share this look like, wow, that was a bust. But then Oliver turns around and he says to us, I love our Advent dinners. Like, really? From an adult perspective, that did not go according to plan at all. But for the kids, 
It doesn't matter. It was a great night, even though it was also a mess. My experience, the more I experience life, is that's just how life goes. I mean, everything doesn't go to according to our plan, does it? If you have this detailed picture of how your life is going to turn out, you are going to be disappointed if you're not already. Christmas reminds us that God doesn't wait for everything to be perfect because it's not going to happen. God comes and joins us in this mess of a life that we're in right now. I want to spend some time on the best part of the Christmas story, the genealogy of Jesus. For the first 17 verses in Matthew, how he starts his gospel is basically just a list of names. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah, and on and on. It seems pretty boring to us, but then you have to remember that for Matthew's audience, they were so steeped in the history of the Bible that every name that they heard, it would connect them, connect them to their story. And some of the stories in this history are a mess. In this patriarchal world that Matthew was in, he follows the custom of tracing the lineage through the male line. In other words, they mostly in this time would have just lifted, listed fathers and sons. They don't list the women. But there are a few places where Matthew breaks with this tradition. So when he breaks with this tradition to mention the women, he does it for a reason, so that we remember their story. Now the first mother Matthew mentions is Tamar. In, in this way, it says, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Now Tamar and Judah weren't exactly a fairy tale romance. Tamar started in this family as Judah's daughter-in-law. Judah had these three sons, and the eldest son, Ur, married Tamar. But then Ur died. Now Judah does what he's supposed to do in this time. He tells his next son, Onan, to have children with Tamar so that her children can then claim this inheritance that would have gone to the children of Onan's brother, Ur. But Onan refuses to get her pregnant because he wants to have kids with his own wife and for them to get the inheritance. So then Onan dies too. Now at this point, Judah is left with one son, Shelah, but he's not sure about this situation with Tamar. And so Judah says, well, I'll give Tamar to Shelah when he's old enough, but that never happens. And so Tamar takes matters into her own hands. And this is crazy. She puts a veil on, she hangs out on the side of a road, like a prostitute, where she knows Judah is going to come back home from shearing some sheep. And Judah sees her, doesn't know she's his daughter-in-law because she's wearing a veil, and Judah propositions her because apparently he makes a habit of this sort of thing, and they do the deed in exchange for a baby goat and Judah's staff. But then Tamar gets pregnant. Now later, G Judah hears the rumor that Tamar, his daughter-in-law, is pregnant because she was working as a prostitute, and she, he decides that she has so dishonored his family that he's gonna burn her to death. And then Tamar gives Judah his staff back, and he's like, oh, that was you, huh? And then he calls the whole burning her to death thing off, nope, we're all good now, and Tamar gives birth to these twin sons, Perez and Zerah, who are Judah's sons, and possibly technically his grandsons too, since she was his daughter-in-law. I don't know how that works. And then one of them continues in this line that would lead to Jesus. 
Now remember, Matthew didn't have to mention Tamar at all, but he does to remind us that this mess is a part of the story of Jesus. The next woman that Matthew mentions is Rahab. Now Rahab is not just a one-time prostitute like Tamar. She was a professional prostitute who owned a brothel in Jericho. Before Israel goes to destroy Jericho, they send some spies in the city. And after a hard day's work spying, these spies visit Rahab's brothel. And Rahab figures out who they are and turns traitor to her own people. She tells them, you can kill everyone else that I've ever known. Just spare me and my family and I'll give you shelter to keep you safe. And so that's exactly what happens. So now Rahab, a foreigner, prostitute, brothel owner, traitor to her own people, becomes part of the line of David and then Jesus. Matthew then mentions Ruth, who's another foreigner, not as much of a scandal as the first two, but she's a Moabite who was married to an Israelite immigrant, but then he dies. And this foreign widow, Ruth, travels with her mother-in-law to Israel to find a second husband, and then she becomes a part of this family tree too. And then the last woman that Matthew mentions, he doesn't even mention my name. He says it like this, David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Matthew wants to make sure to remind us that even though everyone loves King David, he was not perfect. His wife Bathsheba wasn't originally his wife. She was the wife of Uriah, who David then took and had an affair with Bathsheba and then tried to cover it up and eventually killed Uriah as part of this cover-up. And that is a part of the family tree of Jesus. You see, Matthew shows us that Jesus' family tree was an absolute mess, and God comes anyway. Usually when things are falling apart in our lives, what do we ask? Where's God? But in the story of the Bible, we see God saying over and over again to us, I'm right here with you in this mess that you made. See, the story of Christmas means that God is coming to bring good news to the world and all of us get to be a part of it. 